Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 16, Paul writes, Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the sword of God. We continue our study in the armor of God from verse 13. Our enemy, the devil, and demons, you'll remember as we looked earlier in the chapter, are not to be underestimated in verse 12. Satan's supernatural forces have three main characteristics. They are powerful. This is why they're called principalities and powers. They're called world rulers of this present darkness. They're global. They are cunning. And that's why at the beginning of this passage, you'll remember in verse 11, Paul writes, put on the whole armor. And remember what we've already learned. We put it on and we keep it on. Satan has wiles, schemes, and weapons. Satan uses these weapons in an effort to deceive you and to defeat you. When it says in verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places, that word world rulers in verse 12 is very interesting. It's, it's the Greek word Cosmos, kratores. It was a word that was used by the ancients who practiced astrology and the occult. It was used in the ancient world to describe the supernatural forces that were visible in the skies who they believed affected the very real world in which we live. These bodies were thought to control people's lives, which is the very essence of astrology. The word was used by the Greeks in the Orphic hymns of Zeus and in the ancient Gnostic writers in order to invite people to understand and embrace hidden wisdom. It was also a word that was used to describe the sacred powers of the emperor. Paul isn't using this word in any of those ways. He's using it to emphasize the wickedness and the cunning and the power of the invisible forces that stand against you. And since our enemy is powerful and wicked and cunning, we're to employ all of the resources and tools that God has made available to us. Part of the point that Paul is making is we have everything that we need in the Lord Jesus. We were told to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might in verse 10. We were told to put on the whole armor in verse 11. We're to place no confidence in the flesh. That means no confidence. And remember what your flesh is. It's everything that you are apart from Christ. Even the good stuff. Even the attractive stuff. Even the gifted stuff. You might be gifted on so many different levels, but the Bible doesn't invite you to trust your giftedness, but rather your confidence is in Christ. We have our strength in the power of God and the grace of God. And here's part of the point. Without the armor of God, we are left fatally unprotected. And so we've already looked at the belt of truth. That's the revelation of truth of God in Christ Jesus. The, remember, this is the truth that helps us battle against the enemy's lies. And remember, Satan has always used lies. Satan always keeps deceit close by. And we're supposed to love the truth. We've also examined the breastplate of righteousness. Love of the truth, remember, is supposed to lead the believer to live the truth. And so remember as we're connecting the dots, knowing the truth 
loving the truth is supposed to motivate you to live the truth. And we've We've talked about two kinds of righteousness. The righteousness which is found in Christ and self-righteousness. The righteousness of Christ makes us accepted in the beloved. Self-righteousness provides us about as much protection as a very, not a super layered, a very thin piece of toilet paper. So I'm hoping that you get the image. Self-righteousness will tear. The righteousness of Christ again makes us beloved. We stand accepted in Christ. Or we don't stand accepted at all. This is the breastplate that protects us against satanic accusations. We looked at the sandals or the shoes of peace. We stand sure because we have peace with God and the peace of God. You know, one of the great books that I read early on, I must have been 17 years old, and a brand new Christian was Billy Graham's great book, Peace with God. And in that book, he describes how in the tormented world in which I grew up in, you can have peace with God and the peace of God. And so... We also understood that these sandals of peace are the gospel of peace. And we've heard the gospel and we believed the gospel and we share the gospel. And it seems odd that I should have to say this, but I am going to say it. The gospel is the good news of the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The devil hates the gospel. He hates the gospel because it's the power that rescues people from their sin. And the awful dictates of demons. And so, in a very real sense, the gospel is God's ultimatum to Satan. The way Billy Graham used to say, devil, your time is up. You've come to an end. I miss his voice. I miss his voice. And isn't it funny? Again, you can talk like Billy and you can even believe like Billy, but there's something supernatural and anointed about that man's ministry. So now our attention turns to the equipment, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit. And, and this is the absolute confidence in Christ, an absolute assurance in Christ, and, the, and that we're absolutely armed in Christ. And so look again at verse 16. It says, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. We're given the fourth piece of equipment, the shield of faith. And so when Paul writes, above all, he doesn't mean what perhaps you might be tempted to think that he means. You might be tempted to think that above all means that this is the most important piece of equipment that's been issued to you. That's actually not the meaning here. When he says, above all, he's speaking about the importance of the equipment, but he's also speaking about it's intrinsic necessity on the field of battle. And so here he means necessary, indispensable. It, we might even say this should never be neglected. It should never be ignored. It should never be refused. Now in the ancient world of Rome, the Roman soldiers carried two shields. One was very small and round. And it was used in close quarter combat. It was used to deflect the glancing blows of, of a knife or a short sword or, a, or even a spear. Or even when an enemy was using his shield against you. The second shield was much larger. This is the Roman shield known as the scutum. This shield was about two feet wide. And it was about four feet tall. And it was intended to cover the whole Roman soldier. 
In the first century, Italian people weren't as tall as me. I've already told you I'm very tall for an Italian person. In the first century, they were really like, almost like munchkin-like people. And so the, this four-foot shield was meant to protect them. And so the shield could be used when the soldiers advanced in columns or groups. They could literally link their shields together. And in the ancient world, they could create a moving wall of shields. And the shield was made of a single piece of wood that was covered or soaked with leather or beaten metal. And then it would be bound at the top and it would be bound at the bottom. And then it would be decorated with an ornament right in the middle. And the shield was designed to deflect spears and deflect the arrows of the enemy. And when the enemies of Rome would see the columns of shields, they would usually break off in terror. And during the heat of the battle, the shields would, would literally look like porcupines because there would be arrows sticking out of the shields, projecting from the shield. And so in ancient Sparta, mothers would tell their children, bear your shield or be born by it. It's an idiomatic expression, which means trust your shield to carry you, or it will one day carry you. And so this four-foot shield would also be used to drag soldiers who were hurt from the field. The Marines didn't come up with the idea of leave no man behind. Rome practiced it a long time ago. And so our faith is supposed to be like that. Our faith is something that we bear and that bears us. Faith in this instance means personal confidence in Christ. In Psalm 91.4, the psalmist writes, He shall cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. And so when he's speaking about faith, he's actually speaking about two things. It's confidence in Christ, but it's also the sum and the substance of the gospel which gives us that confidence. So our faith should be able to do at least three things. Number one, it should cover us so that no portion of our Christian walk is exposed or unprotected. Now I want you to think about that for just a moment. Your faith doesn't end at church. Your faith continues in the world in which you live. The relationships that you have. Your faith covers every part of your life. Your faith informs your thinking. Your faith informs your feelings. Your faith informs how you're going to work, where you're going to work, and what you're going to do. And number two, our faith should be able to join or link forces with the faith of our brothers and sisters. Just like the soldiers who are able to link their shields together and combine their strength to combat their common enemy. Church isn't just simply a time where you're supposed to come and listen to what I have to say. Church is supposed to be a time where you enter into fellowship and relationship with one another that you begin to discover each other's needs and concerns so that you can bear one another's burdens so you can divide the sorrow so that you can fulfill the law of Christ we unite our confidence in Christ so we can serve and protect one another now I want you to think about that because some of you think that your faith is something very personal and very private and guess what? It may be personal and private, but it was always meant to be shared. It was always meant to include others. And so, number three, because we're able to both cover every portion of our walk and then in service join forces together, it's those things that are able to get us to quench the fiery darts that the enemy throws our way. In other words, there is more protection in numbers. 
So faith isn't concerned with the self. Faith's focus is Christ. Jesus is the object of our faith. That means we look to him. He is the subject of our faith. And so the spirit is faith's power in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. You'll remember in the last chapter in verse 22 where it says, Wives, submit yourselves uh, to your own husbands as to the Lord. Um, where it, it, it talks about, no, that's not what I want. I want Galatians. It's the next book over. I'm still in Ephesians, but in Galatians 5, 22, that's what I wanted to quote. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. The Word of God is faith's channel. And I was reluctant to use that term because again in our culture and society we think of a television channel or a radio channel what I'm talking about is that thing which cuts a deep divide that brings water from one place and then delivers it to another faith is the channel it's the spirit's channel whereby God's person and God's promises are made available in Romans chapter 10, verse 17. So what are these fiery darts that he's talking about? When it says, above all, take the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts. In the ancient world, these were missiles. And they were wrapped in cloth and dipped in pitch, which was a highly flammable substance. It's oil. It's tar, if you will. It will burn hot and it will destroy everything made of cloth. It would destroy everything that wasn't fire retardant. And so for the believer, these fiery darts are all those things. These are demonic missiles dipped in poison that want to destroy your walk with Christ. The fiery darts are going to penetrate and burn anything that doesn't consist of biblical faith. Does that make sense to you? In other words, when the devil comes, anything that is the product of your imagination, anything that is something that you've made up, anything that is man-made, that isn't spirit-led, that isn't composed of the things that are really talked about in the Bible are going to catch on fire and burn away. And so these fiery darts sometimes come in the form of temptations. Sometimes they're expressed by desires or depressions or discouragements. They can come in the form of fear or anger or guilt or shame or confusion or accusation or persecution. All of them have the net desire to defeat you, to destroy you. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 5 in the New Living Translation, it puts it this way. That is why, Paul writes, when I could bear it no longer, I sent Timothy to find out whether your faith was still strong. I was afraid that the tempter had gotten the best of you and that all of our work had been useless, unquote. Isn't that interesting that Paul, writing to the Thessalonians, says, I care about your faith. Are you still holding on? Do you really believe what I've said to you? Are you encouraged? Have you fallen under the spell of the tactics of Satan? And so these are Satan's designs. These are the devices. These are the devil's doings. Satan provokes to wrong action like he did with David in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1, when he speaks about trying to intimidate, if you will, or motivate David in counting the people to look for resources that were something other than God. Satan resists God. 
Satan incites us to sin. Remember Satan's weapons. I've repeated this throughout our study. They are lies, suffering, pride, accusation. They fall under a lot of different categories, but those four categories are what seem to be the most used things in his arsenal. He blinds the minds of unbelievers. He beguiles the saints. Satan opposed the death of Jesus and tried to keep Jesus from the cross. You'll remember that prompted the stern rebuke when, remember, Jesus asked, who do people say that I am? And Peter rightly responded, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And then as soon as that revelation was made, that's when Jesus made it a point to communicate to his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be killed. I'm coming back to life. And remember Peter's words? No, Lord. And do you remember Jesus' response? Get behind me, Satan. That harsh rebuke came when he aligned himself against the plans of God, against the purposes of God, against the will of God. Satan seeks to catch and then snatch the word of God out of your heart. So that it won't take root, like it says in Matthew chapter 16, verse 23. Do you remember the parable of, of the soil, the soils and the sower? The, there was a sower who went out to, to sow seed and he sowed it on the ground. And Jesus reveals that, our, that the word of God is, is that Jesus is the sower. The word of God is the seed and the soil is our heart. And Satan wants to catch and snatch that word away from our heart. So Satan sifts the self-sufficient believer. You'll remember in Luke chapter 22, verse 31, when Jesus says to Peter, Satan has asked for you to sift you like wheat. If you've ever wondered when Satan is most likely to ask for you, it's when you're counting on yourself to be the solution to the problem. R. Kent Hughes calls these hot shafts of sensuality, foul diseased arrows of degrading passion, smoking arrows of materialism. The temptation comes and what happens, he says. Do we hold up the shield of faith or do we hold up the paper plate of rationalism? That is good. Because remember what rationalism is. It's the plausible but untrue excuse of why we do what we do. Are we going to act in faith? Or are we going to act in unbelief? So Satan's strategy remains the same. It's what we've always talked about. Satan's strategy has always been doubt God's word, deny God's word, believe Satan's lies. And when we collapse under the temptation's weight, when we believe Satan and we deny God, we discover something, that all sin comes from the fact that we fail to exercise faith in God's word. Remember, I'm using faith as a synonym for confidence, for trust, for truth. In that sense, then, faith is a shield. Faith is what protects you from those fiery darts. Now, remember, faith is the act of believing in John chapter 1, verse 12. And so, faith is truth believed. Faith is food. It makes us strong. Faith is a weapon that we can wield. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, it says, fight the good fight of faith. 
lay hold on eternal life to which you were called and have confessed in the presence of many witnesses. When Paul writes to Timothy, he's basically saying, do you remember what you said in front of a bunch of people? I've come to believe Christ. I've come to believe it's true. I've come to believe that the, the gospel's true, that the Bible is true. So faith inspires us in in his love, like Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, when we go all the way back to the beginning of, of chapter 1, verse 15, where it says, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, he couples those two words together, faith and love. Faith stands in God's will. Like Stephen in Acts chapter 6, verse 5. Remember, there's a reoccurring passage of Scripture that appears throughout both the Old Testament and the New Testament. The just shall live by faith. That means those who are justified. So all people live by faith, without exception. It just depends on what you're going to believe in. Make no mistake, everyone without exception, believe something. Even the person who says to you, I don't believe in anything. Well, that's a contradiction in terms. You just, said, you just asserted that you believe something and that that belief is nothing. So are you saying you're lying? You're trying to trick me. No, I'm trying to show you the foolishness of affirming that you don't believe in anything. There's a reason why people look both ways before they cross the street. They, they believe that, that they could get hit. There's a reason why most people pray over their food because they don't know if somebody spit in the kitchen. No, that's not why they pray over their food. That's not what they pray. You know, again, when you go out to eat, you assume that people aren't going to spit into your plate. You assume that when the light is red for you, it's green for somebody else. Each and every one of us makes a decision about what we're going to believe or what we're not going to believe. Everyone trusts something. And so when I use the term faith, I mean the basic trust that we have in something or someone. And for the Christian, that's the person of Jesus and the promises of Jesus. So we extinguish the flaming doubts and the temptations of the enemy by taking up this shield of faith. And taking up the shield of faith is the same as believing God's word and God's promises. Remember what I said to you. We put on the armor and we keep it on. You have it on the moment that you open up your Bible and you read God's word and you say to yourself, I'm going to live my life like this is true. In Proverbs chapter 30 verses 5 and 6 it says, every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. You can trust everything he says. And you must hold in suspicion everything that anyone adds. And so we go to the helmet of salvation, this absolute assurance. Look what it says in verse 17. And take the helmet of salvation. A Roman's helmet, the soldier's helmet, looked very much like an old-fashioned football helmet. I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of football players from like 1910 and 1920. They didn't wear helmets like you see them when, when you watch football games today. They were like big, thick leather domes that they would wear on their head. Now, some were covered with metal plates. So they had a leather covering, and then they would attach metal plates to those coverings. They were supposed to protect you from a smashing broadsword or a deadly axe. Discouragement and doubt are the twin edges of Satan's sword. Your enemy carries a weapon. 
And the weapon that he carries is going to test your character. You know what? One of the tests of a person's character is what will it take you to quit? They do this in military training. What will it take for me to get you to just give up? And you know, most people, many people I should say, at the first sign of trouble, at the, at the first opposition, when, when anything goes wrong, they go, oh, you know what? I give up. I'm going to walk away. I'm never going to come back. That's how you can tell what kind of a person you really are. What is it going to take for you to give up? Is it the first threat? Is it the first blow? Is it the first shot that's fired? Because part of the point that Paul is making is that your enemy is recalcitrant. That means he's hardened. Satan won't give up. Satan will keep coming. He will keep making threats. And so the Bible has a lot to say about salvation. And the helmet of salvation, again, is that, that thing that protects you. And so if we ask a different question, what is this? What is this helmet of salvation that Paul is talking about? I'm going to suggest to you in its simplest way of reading it, the simplest way of reading it is this simply means that we're saved. You see, when you're saved, you're saved. You don't have to get saved over and over and over again. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8, it says, But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. According to the Bible, the believer is saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin we will eventually be saved from the presence of sin. When you receive Christ as your Lord and your Savior, the penalty of sin is broken. You're going to heaven. This is what Paul means when he writes later in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Condemnation is a word that means the judicial pronouncement of guilt for crimes that you've committed. So what are you saying? I'm saying that for the Christian, there is never ever a courtroom where the issue has to be decided whether or not you're going to heaven or whether or not you're saved. This is what it means to be saved. You're saved by grace through faith. You've expressed your confidence in trusting Christ. So the hope of salvation doesn't focus on the present state of being saved, but rather our ultimate destiny, our fixed and certain future. And so in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8, when he says, but let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. He doesn't mean, oh, and just hope to God you're going to be saved. That's not what it means. Hope in the Bible means certainty. It means almost the exact opposite of how we use it in common conversation. Well, I hope I get a bike for Christmas. No. Well, that's how we use the term. But when Paul is using the term, he's talking about something that's fixed and certain. Salvation is a lamp, Isaiah 62, 1. My salvation shall be forever, Isaiah 51, verse 6. So in the broadest terms, salvation means rescue. In the most specific and biblical sense of the term, it means to be rescued from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and then the presence of sin. You see, the moment that you die and you shed this body, the eternal you is taken into the presence of God. So let me put it a little bit differently. 
the helmet of God means everything that salvation includes. That's easy enough. The helmet of salvation is everything that salvation in includes. God's saving power is our defense against the enemy of our soul. Charles Hodge wrote, quote, that which adorns and protects the Christian, which enables him to hold his head with confidence and joy is the fact that he's saved, unquote. So Jesus places the helmet of salvation with his nail-pierced hands on each and every head. And so the helmet is intended to provide protection, but it's also intended to provide confidence so that we can fight, so that you aren't frightened by those who oppose you. Hodge suggests that the very presence of your helmet is a sign to the enemy that they're going to be destroyed. I love that. The moment that you show up and you're wearing your helmet, it becomes clear to the enemy that there's nothing ultimately that they're able to do to you. I could kill you. You mean you would be God's instrument to bring me into the presence of God forever and ever? Thank you. It bears repeating. Your helmet gives you confidence in the battle. And the presence of your helmet ensures the certainty of your enemy's destruction. So Satan's doubts and Satan's discouragement extends to those who through trial and circumstance experience hardship and, and loss. You'll remember that even in the Old Testament, in the oldest book in the Bible, Job put on his helmet the moment he said, even if you slay me, yet will I serve you. There's nothing that you can do to me to get me to renounce Christ. And so we're given the assurance of our salvation. When we accept Christ, we're given assurance that the penalty of sin is removed and that the power of sin is being removed and that at some point in the not too distant future, it will be forever removed. And John hints at it in 1 John chapter 5, verse 11, when he says, and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. Eternal life isn't found in the church that you go to or the creed that you embrace. Eternal life is found in the person of Jesus. And remember what we've already talked about in these pieces of equipment. We discover that each and every one of them are a symbol, a euphemism, a declaration of Christ. When we accept Christ, we're given assurance. And then the sword of the Spirit, we're absolutely armed. Look what it says in verse 17. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. All of the gear up until this point has been defensive until now. Now we're given a weapon that is both defensive and offensive. This is the Roman short sword. The word that's translated sword is the very specific word makaira. Some of you who know Latin or Spanish know that word. Have you ever heard the word machete? It comes from this word. It's the short sword. It was a sword that was about 18 inches long. It was maybe just a little bit longer than a Bowie knife. It was forged and then beaten into the shape of a Celtic leaf. And I don't know, I, I, I should have had James put up a picture of a, of a Celtic leaf. But a Celtic, a Celtic leaf looks sort of like this. It comes to a point, it's sharp on both edges, and this is what made the Roman short sword so formidable because it could cut both ways. And so Paul likens it to the word of God. This Roman sword was 
razor sharp. And the writer of Hebrews uses the same image in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, when the writer of Hebrews says, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And in that single passage, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, we learn at least seven things about the Word of God that are either outright stated or implied. Number one, the Word of God is divine in its source. It's supernatural in its origin. It is divine and supernatural. It is the Word of God. The Word of God is living, not dead. That's number two. Number three, the Word of God is powerful, not powerless or weak, or insufficient. The word of God is keen in its operation. It's sharper than any two-edged weapon. The word of God is minute in its division. It's able to divide, and then discern, and then distinguish between that which is soul and that which is spirit. Number six, the word of God is critical in its ability to analyze or its analysis, the way I would say it, discerning both the thoughts and the intents of the human heart. And then it's described as double-edged or two-edged. In other words, it is constructed in such a way that it can have a powerful effect on the world in which we live, the visible world, and also the invisible world. So the word of God is the preacher's message, the believer's foundation, the pilgrim's guide, the soldier's weapon. No enemy can defeat us if we obey God's instructions, believe God's promises, wield God's power in the Holy Spirit. John Bunyan in his classic book, Pilgrim's Progress, writes about it. He says, quote, then said Mr. Greatheart to Mr. Valiant for truth, Thou hast worthily behaved thyself. Let me see thy sword. So he showed it to him. When he had taken it into his hand, he looked thereon a while and said, Ha ha ha, it's a right Jerusalem blade. Then said Mr. Valiant for truth, It is so. Let a man have one of these blades with a hand to wield it and skill to use it and he may venture upon an angel with it. He need not fear. It's holding. If he can but tell how to lay on, its edges will never blunt. It will cut flesh and bones and soul and spirit and all. This is Bunyan's way of saying, it's deadly. It's dangerous. The Roman sword was deadly and dangerous. And God's word is even more deadly and more dangerous. Now, again, I, I want you to think about this in a, in a right way. I'm not talking about in a magical way. I'm not talking about using the Bible and speaking its words as if the words themselves produce some sort of magical result. But rather, it is the content of the truth which the words contain, which point to the real God and the real gospel. Every believer who decides to read it and know it and repeat it and hide it in her heart has a concealed carry permit. <laughs> this weapon, you carry it openly and you can conceal it privately. Remember, Satan wants you to be ignorant of God's will, impatient with God's will, act independent of God's will. 
be challenged or accused by God's will. Remember, 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 Satan traffics in lies and suffering and pride and accusation. And this is why this weapon is so formidable. This is your defense. The inspired word of God, the imparted grace of God, the indwelling spirit of God, the interceding son of God. And so we live in a world where nations have nuclear weapons and instruments of war. We understand the need to protect our nation and protect our family. But the Bible teaches that we have a spiritual weapon more powerful that enables us to fight in the spiritual trenches against the powers of darkness and wicked places. Oliver Cromwell read this passage that I just read to you. And when he fought, he fought with a Bible in one hand and a sword in the other. Now that is not what this passage is teaching. It's not saying, oh, by the way, go get a gun in one hand and get your Bible in the other and then mow down the opposition. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is ours is a call to arms in the spirit. It is to once again remind you of what the Bible can actually do. When Jesus fought Satan in the wilderness, it was with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. The sword was forged in the fiery furnace of his inexpressible holiness and then formed by the breath of his mouth and then sharpened by his infinite self-existent mind. In the book of Revelation, the sword proceeds out of the mouth of the risen Savior. Do you know what this means? That it cut in the past, it cuts in the present, it will cut in the future. I have to admit a guilty pleasure. I loved watching Forged in Fire on the History Channel. And there's a guy on there who's one of the judges. I have friends who's been on this show who make knives. I've just always been fascinated by things that are sharp. And David McIra's on there, and he, uh, um, when he's testing different knives, he'll, 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 he'll usually have two lines during the program. This will cut. And the second line that he'll say every program your knife will kill. That's what he's talking about. Jesus has a duel in the desert with the devil. In, in Matthew 4, three times Satan tempts him. Each time Jesus deflects the temptation with the word of God. Three times Jesus quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 8.3, Deuteronomy 6.16, Deuteronomy 6.13. Some of you are familiar with the passage about the temptations that take place and Jesus' response with the Bible. And I think this is interesting because many of you probably thought, this is the year where I'm going to read the Bible. I'm going to read the Bible. It's February. I'm going to read Genesis and you're, you're good to go. I'm going to read Exodus and you're struggling but you're still going and in Leviticus you hit the wall and in Deuteronomy you give up I think that that's interesting for Jesus Deuteronomy becomes his weapon of choice in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 46 and 47, listen to what it says in the New Living Translation. He added, take to heart all the words I have for you today. Pass them on as a command to your children so that they will obey every word of this law. These instructions are not mere words. 
They are your life. By obeying them, you will enjoy a long life in the land you're crossing the Jordan River to occupy, unquote. Now, think about that for just a moment, because I've met people where, like my friend Ken Ham, Genesis is his weapon of choice. The first 11 chapters. For other people, their weapon of choice is Isaiah. Jeremiah. Most people don't have Habakkuk as their weapon of choice. Or Hosea as their weapon of choice. Most people love Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They'll venture into the book of Acts, but they will linger in the Psalms in order to receive respite and relief. But make no mistake about it. This is the weapon. It comes from God, not from the human imagination. The Bible attributes the word of God to the spirit of God. The Bible says that it is the invisible author, the creator who gave us this revelation. He is the unseen scribe. Scripture is God-breathed. It reveals God's mind. It's not subject to sin. If our hearts and our minds are filled with God's word, we won't be taken by the enemy. We won't be exploited by the enemy. We won't be dominated by sin. And we are less likely to collapse under the weight of temptation. The word of God is our sword. And with it, we cut through the defenses of men, but we also poke their conscience and stab their souls and insist that they wake up. But God also gives it in order to fight demons and resist our enemy. We must always carry it. We must never be ashamed of it. You have to make sure it's in your heart. Keep it next to your bed. Take it with you to school. Take it with you to work. Take it with you wherever you go. And for those who doubt the Bible, for those who discourage its authority, they are giving aid and comfort to the enemy. Kent Hughes writes, quote, the word of God draws the blood of Satan himself, unquote. I don't know if that's true, but I'd like to believe it is. It wounds evil spirits. It comforts broken hearts. But if you don't believe it, if you don't trust it, You'll never use it. We have confidence because Jesus is our shield of faith. We have assurance because Jesus is our helmet of salvation. We are armed and dangerous. When I used to travel with the Bureau and I would have to show my credentials, invariably the the person who's letting me on the plane or wherever I happen to be going, they would say, sir, are you armed? And I would smile. And I would say, the law requires that I always be armed. <laughs> you will be tempted. You will be invited to doubt. You will be offered the opportunity to disbelieve God's word. But Paul writes, endure hardship as a good soldier. Read your Bible. I read that Harry Ironside read his Bible 14 times by the time he was 14 years old. And when I was thinking about Billy Graham today, a few years back, someone asked him an amazing question. They said, Dr. Graham, 
If you had it to do all over again, what would you do different? And Dr. Graham put his eyes down. And then he lifted his eyes up. And he said, I would read my Bible much more. I would pray so much more. He said, I would read my Bible and I would pray. By the way, this is a man who reads his Bible and prays regularly. Memorize the scripture. Someone once asked the wife of Donald Gray Parnas how long it took for him to prepare a sermon. His wife said, it takes 30 years and 30 minutes. It was her way of saying, there is no such thing as a sermon that hasn't been prepared by a lifetime. Donald Gray Barnhouse had immersed himself in the Bible from the time he was 15 years old. He memorized the book of Philippians one verse at a time until he had memorized the entire book. And then he went on to other passages. And it wasn't good enough for him to simply memorize the book. He came to a place where he said, it's not good enough for me to just know the words. He said, I want to believe these words and I want to love these words. Read your Bible, study your Bible. The Bible says, be diligent. That means study to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth in 2 Timothy 2.15. The way that I think about that is when When you study the Bible, you learn to grip your sword. When you learn to handle the sword properly, it can't easily be removed from your hand. John Wesley wrote, quote, The Bible must have been written by God, or good men, or bad men, or good angels, or bad angels. And good men and good angels would not deceive by lying about its authority and claiming that God wrote it. And so the Bible must have been written as it claims to have been written by God who by his Holy Spirit inspired men to record his words using the human instrument to communicate its truth, unquote. Before Billy Graham launched his amazing career, he was in the mountains of San Bernardino. He'd come to believe that Jesus was his savior. But he said there was another time in his life. He said he had to pray. He got down on his knees by a tree in the San Bernardino mountains. And he said, just like I received Jesus by faith. He said, I prayed a prayer where I believed by faith that God's word was true. This was the only way that he would be able to preach it with confidence. You can't give it Unless you live it, you can't give what you don't have. This is why I think he was so effective. This is why when he urged people to repent of their sin and turn and trust the Savior, not thousands, Not even tens of thousands, not even hundreds of thousands, but millions of people believed the Word of God and their lives were changed. And so, put it on, keep it on. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we're so grateful that you've given us the resources that we need in order to stand 
so that we can withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, that we can stand. And so, Lord, we place around our waist the truth. Lord, we remind ourselves that holy living has to be a part of our life. And that, Lord, we would not just believe the gospel, but that we would love it and that we would share it. And that, Lord, having taken on the helmet of salvation and the shield of faith, firmly grasping in our hand the sword of the Spirit, that, Lord, you would prepare us for the trenches. And Lord, again, we know that we're living in a hurt world, in a wicked world, with so many people, with so much pain and so many problems. Lord, I pray that we would become men and women who listen carefully to what others are saying and that we could pray fervently for our brothers and sisters who find themselves in deep and dark places. And so, Lord, again, stir up our hearts. Cause us to love this word, believe this word, read it, memorize it, save it, savor it. And again, Lord, I pray for these men and women. Bless them. Fill them. Use them. In Jesus' name, amen.